Welcome to episode 20. Yeah, welcome to the Flan Air Podcast. Straight out of London, UK, it's where we broadcast. Thanks for tuning in and taking your time. Arts and culture, reviews you'll find. We're the top podcast out in London, UK. A great time is what we're fronting every day. Without further ado, let's start the show. Sit back, relax, enjoy, let's go. Thanks for downloading and listening to the show. This week we see Gollum at the Trafalgar Studios and watch Hardcore Disco, which screened at the Polish Film Festival. We also review Harvey at the Theatre Royal Haymarket and Keanu Reeves' new film, John Wick. We finish with a protest song from Two Nights, produced by Jinx, that has come out of the current Reclaim Brixton demonstrations. Shamira Turner is excellent as Robert, the early adopter in Gollum, a potty satire with vibrant design, which has transferred from the Young Vic to the Trafalgar Studios. The other four actors also add hugely to the fun. In this play which studies technological progress and criticises the constant parade of newer and slightly better tech that is cynically conveyor-belted towards us by companies like Apple. The actors have pale, whitened faces, wild hairdos, black-lined eyes. Live music plays throughout, increasing the sense of watching an early silent movie that has forgotten to be silent. Precise timing and positioning allows the witty interaction of animation and actor, but there are many amusing asides, statements and drawings to be savoured. Gollum is a smashing satire of the dangers of technological development and the way that this is pushed on to consumers. But it has no answers, and as disinventing has not yet been invented, the play is really romanticising a past that had its own issues with technology. See World War I, World War II, etc. This it does in an attractive, though technology-reliant way, pushing the message that we've messed up and are surrounded by golems of our own, even if they aren't made of clay, animated and freely displaying their genitals. It is hard to imagine that computers were not used in the making of this production, so there's a slight tang of hypocrisy and little acknowledgement of the good that technology can bring. It doesn't always turn on you and ruin your life. I've heard so much about magic touch. Campana's new cream makeup. Is it so very different from other makeups? It's so different that you'll never believe how much prettier it will make you until you try it. Magic Touch is a cream complexion makeup that you apply with your fingertips. No powder puff, no water. You can use it anytime, anywhere. And it literally performs magic for your complexion. Magic Touch contains a new magic ingredient that causes it to blend better than any cream makeup yet invented. I'm going to try it tomorrow. And believe me, you'll never know how pretty you can be until you do. Hardcore Disco follows a few days in the life of Marson, a psychopath on a mission that's as unclear to him as it is to us. He's the odd duck, rebel romantic brooder of pop culture idolatry, and he's also a board-of-life murderer for whom even the most extreme adrenaline devices have grown stale. As it has been for Marson, the film tempts viewers with the allure of rapid-fire sex and violence, but then aims to reach a higher state, and makes its point by burning slowly instead. Early in the film, Marson meets a young girl, Ola, who along with her friends is in constant need of action. Marson quickly gets involved in the lives of her and her family, where he broods, he nods his head, he kills, he steals, and he looks off into the distance but gets no closer to finding either a solution to his boredom or redemption. Life in the fast lane, it seems, isn't all it's cracked up to be. Sadly, everyone seems too self-involved to notice. While Marson's clearly dangerous, offering no more in the way of charm than a nod and a smile, 
For the characters of Hardcore Disco, that's enough to let them turn a blind eye to his transparent sociopathology. Through him, they ignite or reignite their secret desires and use cigarette lighters to set their moral compasses on fire. And, lacking more than just the barest of humanity, Marson's always complicit in their demises. He's the devil in a hoodie, and he tricks them all with cool. His slow calm offers the perfect foil to everyone else's rush for life. In one scene, Ola's family is too busy chatting about themselves to notice a knife hanging out of Marson's pocket for the majority of the scene. They then criticize society's current tendency of avoiding high art in favor of the high-octane distraction circus of modernity. So, in spite, or perhaps because of Hardcore Disco's titular promises of pulp goodies, Hardcore Disco gleefully teases the viewer by withholding on action and glamorous vice and instead opts for slow pacing and lengthy shots of nature. Hardcore Disco takes its time. Instead of bombarding the viewer with 90 minutes of plot development and strobe light effects, it offers minimalism on a platter and begs the viewer to savor it. One lengthy one-shot sex sequence even takes place in front of a poster for the Jim Jarmusch minimalist classic, Stranger Than Paradise. The following scene, the characters discuss the merits of another Jim Jarmusch film. All of this is not to say that hardcore disco doesn't clearly understand the attraction of, say, a Michael Bay-styled slow-motion explosion. It clearly does, but it just won't give it to you. Instead, it'll offer snow falling and Marson tossing a Molotov cocktail in slow motion, but will then change the scene before the explosion ever ignites. The film is complete with all the classic attractions of Hollywood, sex, drugs, and violence. It just won't deliver them with a classic effect. Given the massive costs of staging a West End production, the producers of Harvey must be pleased that the eponymous star is an imaginary six-foot-tall white rabbit. I don't know what the equity rate for an imaginary six-foot-tall white rabbit is, but I imagine he's getting paid less than his human co-stars. Director Lindsay Posner has at least made sure he gets some recognition. At the final curtain call, the actors move aside to allow him to join the lineup. Harvey at the Theatre Royal Haymarket is a revival of a play written in 1944 by Mary Chase about well-to-do brother and sister Elwood P. Down and Vita Louise, played by James Dreyfus and Maureen Lippmann. Elwood has an imaginary friend, which society deems okay when you are five, but regards as unacceptable when you are 55. As the siblings are now middle-aged, Elwood's invisible chum is causing problems. Tired of Elwood's behaviour, which is entirely pleasant and good-natured, but very rabbit-centric, Vita decides to have him committed to a sanatorium. Confusion and misunderstanding ensue, a comedy of errors that is really rather too obvious to be satisfactory. The casting, though, is a great success. James Dreyfus as Elwood P. Down is spot-on, playing the part with gusto, innocence and constant smiles. Maureen Lippmann is an ideal foil, able to get laughs with just a gesture, though it is a disheveled reappearance after an unexpected experience at the sanatorium that is most amusing. The play may have won a Pulitzer Prize back in 1945, but the script is weak. The scripted jokes are generally obvious, and the farcical elements are forced, relying on Vita not looking in a certain direction for far too long, or Elwood not being allowed to finish his sentences far too many times. But the sets are excellent, Two revolving stages that jigsaw together perfectly, whether making a bourgeois panelled library, a sanatorium office, or a bar with worn-out mirrors. 
Your interpretation of what the invisible Harvey represents will colour your enjoyment of the show. At the start, it appears to be a mental illness that in Victorian style, Vita wants locked up and hidden from her friends. Given it was written during World War II and Chase would have seen the effects of World War I on returning soldiers, Elwood could be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Seen in such a way, the play becomes a rather tasteless mental illness, the comedy. Further on, Harvey seems to be alcoholism, which doesn't really improve matters. But later, Harvey more clearly represents individuality and freedom. Harvey becomes the hidden side of everyone's personality that is repressed or hidden under cynicism. Understood like this, the story can be enjoyed as a pie into eccentricity. No wonder it is so popular here in Britain. Keanu Reeves is back from that awful movie 47 Ronin. This time, in John Wick, he returns as a retired hitman with one last job left to complete. So, I suppose the real question is, will John Wick be a walk towards the tombstones or an equaliser? John Wick is not really a name that strikes terror into the hearts of men. There is no snap or crack to it, which is exactly how the film wants it to be. The name is a summary of the man it belongs to. John Wick is a throwback, a silent assassin. After the death of his wife and the loss of his dog, he has nothing to lose, a man set only on one task, vengeance. Unbridled, unrelenting, unstoppable vengeance. John Wick is a good old-fashioned revenge movie with no distractions. It has a cyan tint all the way through, making it look altogether more cold and brooding. Best of all, John Wick is human. He can get hurt. It is a film like Leon, only without the responsibilities and the child. John Wick is like Leon, if in the first ten minutes Natalie Portman got shot in the face. John Wick is the assassin film without the moral compass to return to. Spielberg once said, I try to invoke emotion from people and not just shoot the dog. Derek Kolstad decided to take the easy route and just have his villains murder a dog. He also decides to make them gobby punk kids and cowards to boot all of which makes Alfie Allen one of the most hated men I've seen in a long time. John Wick is a fun, cool, little revenge action movie. It's not ambitious, and it's not life-changing. But what it does do, it does well. I admire a film for that. Brixton is currently the focus of demonstrations by Reclaim Brixton, concerned about the gentrification of the area. They believe that London is being sold off to the highest bidder and are worried about the effects on social, private and commercial tenants. You can find out more by searching for Reclaim Brixton on Facebook. Musician Too Nice has released a protest song that sums up the local feelings. Produced by Jinx, this is Brixton. I, I was more or less brought up here. So we know the difference from then till now. It's just appalling to keep us in this situation for so long. The residents are the voices, so, I mean, they're the ones living here. I think a lot, a lot of the things, a lot of the things are going is a bit underhand and a bit sort of in, trying to be, trying to be intimidated. They're not being forthcoming with the true information that we need to be fully informed so we can make a decision for ourselves as a community. In a city like Zorone, they want black with brown, they don't. Mark with cars with bone, stop me cars with pops are yardy and broke every puppy that know. Then yeah, I got 
That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. You can read more reviews at www.flanair.london. Thanks to our contributors, Jonathan Glick, Tom McLeod, Robert Lucas and Sophie Coward.